Please turn in your Bible to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 9. I was not uh, originally scheduled to preach uh, this morning, uh, hence in your bulletins you'll notice that Rex Blackburn was to preach on Colossians uh, 4, 2 through 6. You'll have to forgo that privilege this morning as I assume Rex is home with a baby. Uh, Friday, Ransom Titus Blackburn was born. I don't know what they want us to call Ransom. I saw RT was one of the suggested names. I told Rex that R.T. Blackburn, if that's going to be his name, he pretty much is destined to write a commentary on Hebrews. <laughs> you know, the, the New Testament scholar, R.T. Blackburn, that sounds just right. Uh, so as we have uh, reshaped things, thank you, Lydia, um, uh, I'm going to preach this morning a topical sermon on Mark chapter 9, a text that has been on my heart lately. Next week will be a sermon that focuses on the resurrection. Then we'll be back in our series in Colossians, but we have to go a bit out of order due to some peculiarities in the schedule. So there's two sermons left in Colossians. Rex had a sermon prepared already. The next time he'll preach is May 1st, and I wasn't just going to take his text from him and, you know, have him start over. I guess I could preach his sermon, but uh, I'll leave that for him. Uh, so I'm going to preach Colossians uh, 4, 7 through 16 on April 24th, and then on May 1st, he will preach the sermon that he was to preach this morning. So uh, bear with us. Ultimately, the providence of God is over all of this, and we trust Him with that. Please look with me now at Mark chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. Mark 9, beginning in verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and He did not want anyone to know, for He, that is Jesus, was teaching His disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him. And when He is killed after three days, He will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask Him. And they came to Capernaum, and when He was in the house, He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And He sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Let's pray together. Our Father, please come now to us on the wings of preaching, on the wings of Your Word, and speak to us. There are things in this passage so foundational and fundamental to discipleship, so fundamental to understanding who the Lord Jesus is and what it is He comes and does and brings. We pray that You would open our minds to understand these things and that You would seal these truths to our hearts. We pray that we would live this passage. Bless us in our meditation on it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, where are we in Mark 9? We're just sort of dropping down into a gospel here. Let's try to catch us all up to speed. Jesus is coming to the end of His public ministry. So He's been ministering for three, three and a half years now, we believe. He's nearing the end of His public ministry, which has been spent for the most part in the north country in Galilee. He's about to begin uh, the fateful road to Jerusalem which uh, 
culminates in the triumphal entry on Palm Sunday, which is today. And uh, uh, entering Jerusalem, then he's in the final week of his life, there's the upper room discourse, and then Jesus is in the final hours of his life in the garden, he's betrayed, and he's sent to the cross where he makes atonement for the sins of his people. Here in Mark 9, they're about to start on that journey down to Jerusalem. He's coming to the end of his public ministry. Already in Mark 9, at the end of verse 37, by the end of verse 37, he has twice announced to his disciples that he is going to Jerusalem to suffer and to die, and that he would, after three days, rise again. Jesus makes three such statements in the Gospel of Mark before he actually goes to the cross. He makes one in chapter 8, one in chapter 9, and one in chapter 10. And as Jesus prepares to go to Jerusalem, and even on the road leading him there, he repeatedly brings this issue to the disciples. I'm going to Jerusalem to give myself over to men, and they're going to put me to death, and then I will rise again. Our text this morning comes on the heels of the second of these three statements Jesus makes concerning His death and resurrection. But briefly now, I just want you to notice each one. So, I'm going to look back at chapter 8, then we'll look again at chapter 9, then chapter 10. I want to see if you notice a pattern that emerges in these three statements of Jesus about His death and what immediately comes after. So, please turn to Mark 8, verse 31, just a page over. Mark chapter 8, the first time Jesus foretells of His death, He's preparing to be on that road to Jerusalem. We read this in Mark 8, 31, and He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And He said this plainly. So, so no, no uh, parable here. Uh, he doesn't speak in riddles. He says this plainly, verse 32, and Peter took Him aside and began to rebuke him. So something about what Jesus is saying about dying and giving himself over to the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests is incompatible with Peter's view about what the Messiah is to be and what he is to do. Verse 33, but turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Okay, now turn over to chapter 9. I'm not going to reread the whole passage now. But Jesus again in verses 30 through 32 presents the same thing. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. The disciples immediately apparently on the road argue over who is the greatest Jesus exposes that that was their conversation, and He gives this principle in verse 35. And He sat down and called the twelve, and He said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Now turn over to chapter 10. Again, Jesus in verses 32 and following highlights, now on the road to Jerusalem itself, He tells them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem and die. I'm going to give myself up, and three days after I will rise again. What happens immediately after that in the narrative is James and John approach Jesus and say, Lord, would you grant it that we could sit at your left hand and right hand when you come into your glory? Again, vying for position and power. This is what Jesus says in verse 42. And Jesus called them to Him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, 
And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So have you noticed the pattern in all three of these statements about Jesus' death and what comes immediately after? In all three occasions when Jesus makes his statement about his humiliation, about his impending death, about his giving up of himself to be crucified, all three are followed up immediately by some instance of the disciples vying for their own status and position and power. And then in each case, Jesus presents to them some principle about how the pathway to true greatness is the path of humility and sacrifice. Jesus is going to Jerusalem to give up his life, to be humiliated, to sacrifice himself. And in this, he's trying to teach them something about discipleship and something about greatness. Jesus is introducing a pattern that they cannot possibly understand at this stage, but they will understand and even preach after the resurrection. And that is that he who is greatest is he who will make himself least. The pattern is suffering and then glory. The last will be first. The first will be last. The humble will be exalted. True greatness is not a crown, but a towel and a basin. True greatness is not about seizing privilege and power and status, but in sacrificing oneself for others. Jesus wants to show His disciples the nature of true greatness. All right, having observed this pattern in all three of those passages and with this context in mind, let's look at our passage now in Mark 9, verses 30 through, 7, 30 through 37. We'll open the passage up under three headings, which are really three main plot movements, okay? Three headings this morning to frame our exposition of Mark 9, 30 through 37. And the first point is this, point number one, the disciples failed to grasp the nature of true greatness. The disciples failed to grasp the nature of of true greatness. Look with me at verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. Now, I don't think we should understand Mark to be saying they literally couldn't make out what he was saying. Like, like as if when he was saying this, like a loud car went by and, you know, slammed its car horn or something like that. What was it you said, Jesus? We couldn't make out what he was saying. I don't think that's the idea at all. Nor do I think they couldn't understand the meaning of the words that Jesus was saying in the sense that somehow they couldn't put together the simple propositions being stated. It's hard to think of more clear and plain and obvious language. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Simple propositions that are given, same as what we saw in Mark 8, where Jesus, we read, spoke plainly to them. No, they knew, they understood that Jesus was saying he was going to be delivered into the hands of men who would kill him. I think they perfectly understood that. What they didn't understand is how this could be so. It did not comport with their view of the greatness and power and preeminence that belongs to the Messiah, the rightful King of Israel. It didn't make sense with their view of who the Messiah was meant to be. Their view of greatness, particularly the greatness that belonged to the Christ, was incompatible with this kind of a humiliation. That's why I think Peter in Mark 8 reacted the way he did. It was offensive 
to his notion of greatness. Messiahs don't die. Lord, you will not be treated in such a way. You who are the king of Israel, the one we've been hoping for. It was just incompatible, unfathomable to him that this is what would be the fate awaiting he who was the Christ. The rabbinic Judaism of this day was quite taken with notions of status, position, and rank everyone and everything in its proper place. Uh, So, you know, the stories of the Pharisees and other religious leaders who loved their certain prominent places. Uh, How often did the disciples argue and vie for position and rank? That was very present in rabbinic Judaism. Furthermore, the Roman overlords would have thought the same way about power and position and rank. Apparently, the disciples had imbibed uh, the cultural wine of rank, placement, and self-importance, and they import it into their understanding of who Jesus is and who He is meant to be. Furthermore, if you try to slip into the shoes of the disciples, knowing what their experience has been thus far and where they're going to Jerusalem, the holy city, it's possible that this journey to Jerusalem that they had anticipated that was about to begin was already stoking the flames of messianic hope in their minds. Surely now the kingdom would break forth in Jerusalem with Christ at its head, established as the rightful king over Israel. Hey, and guess who his 12 closest companions are? We've stuck with him. We've been faithful to him. We're in the the procession, the party, the parade that's going into Jerusalem. Surely he will give positions of power and authority along with him to us in the coming kingdom. For he was teaching his disciples, but they did not understand what he was saying. Look now at verse 33, still under point one. And they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. What do you think happened? They passed through Galilee on their way to Capernaum. Jesus tells them he's going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and when he is killed after three days, he will rise. They don't ask him about it. The text says, because they were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, they probably saw how that went for poor Peter. The last time Jesus brought this up, and Peter tried to protest, and, well, he got uh, given a name in that context. So perhaps they just sort of drop back behind Jesus. Jesus now announces this again, and instead of confronting him about it, they just sort of recede, they kind of tail Jesus. Maybe others are talking to him more at the front, and they apparently start carrying on a conversation. And they're talking to one another, and the conversation begins to get a little animated. And at some point, someone speaks a bit more loudly than perhaps they attended to, and Jesus overhears. Maybe you've had a conversation like that. Here are the kids over here. Here's mom and dad having a discreet and quiet conversation in the kitchen, and it's getting more and more animated, and then dad blurts out, well, well, then we just won't have any Christmas presents this year. And the kids all of a sudden hear that and are set off. Maybe it was something like that. Jesus overheard the conversation as it got more and more animated. Perhaps John says to James, well, when we get to Jerusalem, surely the Lord will make me his chief of staff. James, brother, you have no chance. And besides, you know the two of us, I've always been the one who's really more cut out for leadership. Perhaps Peter says to the both of them, well, you know, I'm more gifted than the two of you combined. If anyone's going to be at the Lord's right hand when he restores the kingdom here, I think he knows where to look. Perhaps the Lord overhears this, or perhaps He doesn't overhear anything at all. Instead, He, simply knowing men's hearts, can read them right back to them. But Jesus asked them, verse 33, what were you discussing on the way? 
Verse 34, but they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. They're silent out of shame and guilt. They know what they were talking about. They thought Jesus couldn't hear them, wouldn't know about it, and they are ashamed because evidently He does know. You wonder in the three, three and a half years they were with Jesus how many times uh, this happened to them. You wonder how many times this would happen to us if the Lord searched our hearts and revealed our motives and our words and our deeds with the same types of questions. What went through your mind when you saw that man or woman promoted over you? Was it how it should have been you? What was it you were saying to your friend about how it's really you who should be recognized more, you who should have been selected for that role of leadership? What was that you were doing? Surreptitiously, behind the scenes, manipulating circumstances so you'd come out on top. Brothers and sisters, how we'd be ashamed into stone-cold silence if Jesus put that kind of a question to us. He asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. The disciples failed to grasp the nature of true greatness. They believe greatness is defined by power, status, and recognition. It is me above you, ahead of you, in front of you, before you, over you. That is not the way Jesus is going to teach them. Greatness in His kingdom, in His economy, in His family will operate on a completely different principle. Remember, they viewed His statements about His death and humiliation as incompatible with their view of greatness. Now Jesus will show their ambitions for status and recognition to be incompatible with His view of greatness. So consider with me now point number two. See, number one, the disciples failed to grasp the nature of true greatness. Number two, Jesus explains the nature of true greatness. Verse 35, and he sat down and called the twelve. Such a gentle teacher. Uh, This will be a learning moment for them. He assumes a familiar posture, uh, probably as he had it on so many occasions. They sit down, maybe for a meal. I want to talk to you, man. I want to teach you something. Verse 35, he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and the servant of all. Now, notice what Jesus says. If anyone would be first, what does that mean? What is he saying? I think he's saying, do you want to be great? Is that what you want? Are we talking about greatness? I can tell you how to be great. There is such a thing as true greatness. It's not what you're thinking of. But there is such a thing as true greatness. Now, this is where many people can go wrong and misunderstand Jesus at this point. Jesus doesn't say, well, well, don't you know, my disciples, there are no great people. There's no such thing as greatness. You shouldn't be thinking of it that way. Everyone's the same. Get out of your head any idea of rank and status. That's not what he says. Jesus is not eradicating any idea of greatness. He's redefining it. You see that? He's not getting rid of the category. He's not saying there's no such thing as greatness. No, he wants to redefine in their minds what true greatness is. Friends, we need to know this. It is not unspiritual to pursue real greatness. 
to aspire to true greatness in God's eyes. Heaven will be full of reward and recognition and honor and glory for those who have humbled themselves in this life and have taken the posture of a servant to all. The last in this life, Jesus says, will be first in the life to come. So Jesus' lesson, don't misunderstand it. It is not that there is no such thing as greatness and you should not aspire to it. How unspiritual that you want to be great. That's not what he's saying. He's saying there's such a thing as greatness and you should aspire to it. The problem is you don't know what it is. So let me tell you. You want greatness. Is that what you're after? Let me tell you how to be truly great. Verse 35. If anyone would be first, if anyone would be great, he must be last of all and servant of all. He must be last of all. What does that mean? It means that he must humble himself. He's not looking for the praise of man or worldly pomp and fame. He's not looking for the recognition of flesh and blood. Rather, he's happy to be thought of last. Last person in the room to be considered. Last person in the room to be recognized. He doesn't look at the spotlight and think that's where I was born to be. Oh, I'm not first, I'm a nobody. I don't deserve any special treatment. I know I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm just happy to be on the show, man. I mean, I am entitled to nothing. You know that about yourself, brothers and sisters. We're sinners saved by the grace of God. We are entitled to nothing. Everything we have is a blessing and gift of grace, not earned through our merit. We are sinners saved by the grace of God. We are last of all. We are entitled to nothing. The disciple who is truly great doesn't look at the front of the line and think, huh, well, that's, of course, where I belong. He doesn't look at the spotlight and think, that's where I was born to be. He doesn't look around at his brothers and sisters and think, you know, I really belong at the head of the table. I really should be the leader of the pack. I really should be considered the greatest in this group. I'm really something, and you know what? The sooner people recognize it, the better it's going to be for everybody. No, he's content to be last because he knows that's where he belongs. This is a kind of sanctified self-abasement, a kind of humility that's born of real self-knowledge. I am the last of all. I've spoken before about the Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs, lived in the 1600s uh, in East Anglia, so you have London here. Here is Oxford, here's Cambridge, East Anglia is over here, and that's Puritan country, and he's a Puritan pastor out there, graduated from Emmanuel College in Cambridge. Emmanuel College is part of the inspiration for the name of this church, and um, he's pastoring out there. He wrote The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment, a Puritan classic I'd recommend to anybody to read, excellent book, and uh, Jeremiah Burroughs was actually the first preacher in England to be described as the Prince of Preachers. Last four or five or six years of his life, he preaches in London in the epicenter, and he's kind of like a celebrity preacher, if you want to use that word, and he's the prince of preachers, the morning star of London. But it wasn't always that way. He pastored most of his life in obscurity, very, very teeny tiny small congregations in rural villages. And he's watching over most of his life as his friends who graduated from prestigious Cambridge, they're taking up these strategic and, and prestigious posts all over England. And these are heady times for England. This is during the English Civil War. And um, Jeremiah Burroughs is over here in, uh, you might think, rural hall, 
okay? No offense if you come from rural hall. But he's got his 10 or 12 there in the little village. I've always loved this quote from Jeremiah Burroughs, the writer of the rare jewel of Christian contentment. He says this, I had been confined to my closet, yet it had been a service of which I had been unworthy. See what he's saying? If my congregation is me and my laundry, it's a service that I'm unworthy of. I don't belong in the public eye. I don't need to be there. I am last of all, not even worthy that I would lead in my closet. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And then he says he must be the servant of all. Last of all, the servant of all. It's not merely that I don't take the place of prominence and priority, it's that I actually become your servant. I'm to say you're more important than I am. I'm happy just to be your servant. I want to sacrifice for you, lay down my life for you, subordinate my interests to yours. I will take the posture of a servant before you. Now, this isn't where Jesus goes in this particular episode, but of course, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, perhaps your mind immediately goes to John 13 and the upper room discourse. How does that section of Scripture begin? It begins with Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah, taking off His outer garment, tying a towel around His waist, filling a basin of water, and getting down on His knees before His disciples and washing their feet. Just think about that. We, we quote this passage all the time. But think about the moment. Hands that set the stars in place are wringing a towel dirty with toe jam. The humility, the Messiah who is the servant of all. And what does he say when that episode is over? Verse 14, he says, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. Do you want to be great? Start esteeming yourself the servant of others, not the ruler of others. But before leaving this point, one more detail to notice about this principle Christ lays down. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and he must be servant of all. Not last among the honorable, not servant of the high and privileged only. No, we're to be last of all, servant of all. Servant not only of the high and mighty, but of the poor, the needy, and the least. Last behind the outcast, the stranger, the socially awkward, the uneducated, the unpopular. Jesus said, you consider yourself above nobody. You are a servant to all. No one falls outside the pale of those you consider more important than yourself. There is no one for whom you should not sacrifice yourself and become a servant. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Just to encourage you, brothers and sisters, by this standard, anyone can be great. You don't have to have a great education. You don't have to come from the social elite or anything like that. The world will tell you that. In order to be great in the world, you're going to need certain advantages and privileges typically, unless you're just an unbelievable self-starter and you push yourselves into the higher rungs of society. But typically, you're going to need some assistance to get there. And being great in the world's eyes is really only available to a select few. It's not that way in the kingdom of God. The least among us could be the greatest among us. 
if he follows this principle, that those who would be first should become last of all and the servant of all. Okay, third and final point. We've seen number one, the disciples failed to grasp the nature of true greatness. Number two, Jesus explains the nature of true greatness. And number three, Jesus shows the nature of true greatness. It's just one of those sections in the Gospels where Jesus just appears too good to be true. It's unbelievable that this is our Savior. Jesus shows the nature of true greatness. Look at verse 36. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Jesus, ever the masterful teacher, doesn't allow the lesson to remain in the abstract. He must illustrate it. He must prove it. He must exhibit it for them in a way that would be memorable and compelling. So Jesus doesn't just state the principle, He enacts the principle. He dramatically portrays the principle. So what does He do? He calls a child and sets the child in the midst of the gathering, the discussion that's being had. Now let me just say a quick word about children in this context. The virtues of childhood were not extolled in Greek and Jewish society as they are in some modern societies. Many worship their children today. Greeks and Jews were not guilty of that. The Jews didn't do that. One commentator writes, societies with high infant mortality rates and great demand for human labor cannot afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. In Judaism, children and women were largely auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men, either as fathers or husbands. Children in particular were thought of as not having arrived. They were good illustrations of the very last. So Jesus says, you want to be great. You must be last of all and the servant of all. What do I mean by all? Well, I'll show you. So he calls a child to stand in the midst of them. Now put yourself in that room. Try to imagine the situation of these disciples. Uh, Jesus has announced to them that he's going to die, he's going to give himself into the hands of men, they're going to kill him and he'll rise again, the disciples don't get it, and they, they what? They start arguing on the way about who's greater, and Jesus now, as they've arrived at the house, he exposes this, uh, that they were vying for position and rank and power, and they're, they're feeling ashamed and they're probably still quite silent. Very few questions or interruptions to the master's lesson, and here Jesus, he gathers around the table and says, I want to teach you something. Whoever among you would be first, you must be last of all and the servant of all. And he looks around and he's thinking, how can I illustrate this? And he calls in a little child from outside. And the child, why would the master want me? The men are meeting inside. What, what, what do I have to do with this? So the child comes in, Jesus takes the child by the arm, and he sets the child in the middle of them. I don't know if they were around in a circle, sitting in chairs. I don't know. The child's sitting there. Now, you know children. What was the child doing? Probably <laughs> awkward. What am I doing here? <laughs> you know, how awkward that child would have felt. Am I in trouble? What's going on? Imagine the situation. The child's like, what's the master doing by this? Why would he set a child in the midst of us? And what does Jesus do? 
He stoops down and he looks that child in the eye. And with the warmest of smiles, he sets out his hands and receives the child into his arms. And he holds up the child and he says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. I imagine the last thing these disciples would have expected. Whoever receives one such child, whoever loves the child, sees himself as last to the child, becomes a servant to the child. You want to be great, last of all, servant of all, even a little child. No social position, no evident worth or utility to the surrounding community, no ability to pay you back, and yet he says, consider this little child as more important than yourself, to the point of becoming a servant to the child, even to the least of these You humble yourself and become a servant. This, my disciples, is true greatness. But you see what Jesus is saying. He's not saying what he says in other places when children are involved. Sometimes he says we're to be like children in the sense that we're to have childlike faith. But he's not saying here be like children. He's saying be like Jesus who embraces children. The children are the last of all, the least of all, and Jesus, not the child, is here demonstrating what it means to be the servant of all. Jesus is saying how you respond to the last, the lost, the least, the left out, and the looked over is the measure of your greatness. If you cannot condescend to serve a little child, you don't know anything about what it means to be truly great. But if you would know greatness... Jesus says, imitate my example. Receive and embrace and love and serve even little children. And then it's just amazing what Jesus says in verse 37. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. I love what the commentator James Edwards says about this verse. He says, the humblest act of kindness sets off a chain reaction that shakes heaven itself. For whatever is done to the little and the least is done to Jesus. And whatever is done to Jesus is done to God. Now that's something. You want to be great. When you receive little children, you'll receive the living God Himself. That's true greatness. Humble yourself to become the servant of the neediest among us, and you will be an esteemed servant of the Most High God. Well, now I'd like to transition from exposition application, three points of application, and we'll be done. Application number one. In light of this passage, we must eschew and reject all worldly notions of greatness. In light of this passage, we must eschew, for you note-takers, E-S-C-H-E-W, eschew and reject all worldly notions of greatness. Friends, the world tells us a number of lies about what greatness is. The world's telling us all kinds of lies nowadays. This may be one of the most fantastic lies the world is telling us about what comprises true greatness in the world. The world will tell us that greatness is about status. It's about recognition. It's about position. It's about being on top. 
and everyone is gunning for it. It's being the top of the class or receiving a certain position at work or being thought of highly by your peers, or achieving a certain standard in terms of wealth and status. People spend their lives running after this. But what does Jesus say? Men and women will pursue this standard of life, and then they will die, and then they will go to hell. And Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and suffer the loss of his soul? You're familiar with those words, I'm sure. They need to hit us with new freshness, I think, in our climate. He's saying, like, do you see the end of all it? Well, you get like 40, 50, 60 years of being on top, and then what? No, really, what? You're so great, you're so powerful, you're so awesome, you're all that and a bag of potato chips, all for what? Do you know where that ends? You'll be a bag of bones in 100 years. You're going to be glorified fertilizer for the worms. What does it gain? The the man or the woman, to gain the whole world but suffer the loss of his everlasting soul. And it's worse than being a box of bones or glorified fertilizer. You'll sink below the earth to hell forever. What what is that kind of greatness? Is that so great? We read biographies of these men and women and all their achievements. Where are they now? They've passed into eternity where they can't carry any of that stuff with them. They're all sitting in graves somewhere. They've been incinerated. I mean, Just recognize that whatever you're aiming for in the sort of worldly scale of greatness, it will not be around for some of us 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 50 years from now, certainly 100 years from now. You may think you're really something in the world's eyes. You're great. You have the praise of man. You have money. You have status. How many people would love to be you right now? But my friend, it won't be so 100 years from now. You give your life. You sell your soul for status and position and fame and money and those kinds of things. If you could see only what you will become in a hundred years, you would shriek and shrink back in horror. Where does it all lead? Where does it all end? That thing you're pursuing, will you be glad that you pursued it a hundred years from now, a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now? Friends, never believe the lie that greatness is bound up in position, in status and recognition, in the praise and approbation of man. It's all an illusion. It's all a house of cards. But the world tells us more lies about greatness. The world will tell us that greatness is not just about status, that it's about our sense of self-worth and our sense of our own value. The world at all points conditions us to think that we ourselves are at the center of the universe. Just, just watch the ads, uh, Apple ads, or Amazon ads, or self-care ads, things like that. Don't you deserve better? Shouldn't you have more? Uh, you really are something. At all points, we're conditioned that we're the center of the universe, and this thing, this world and everything around it is about maximizing my own sense of self-worth and my own pleasure. I'm, I'm truly great, and as soon as the others around me recognize it, it'll be better for everybody. I really am something. I really am awesome. I really have something to be beheld and looked at. You are awesome, and if anyone doubts it, that is an affront to yourself, evidently awesome and beautiful self. And you can test this in your own heart, how quickly our hearts rise up within us whenever our sense of entitlement or our sense of our own rights is violated. You don't talk to me that way. Don't you know who I am? Hey, you can't treat me that way. I can't be deprived of that. Don't you know I deserve that? I've earned that. 
That's how our hearts speak to us, don't they? And along comes this word from Jesus. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Imagine your financial advisor saying that to you. What's his job? His job is to say, hey, you should really enjoy this stuff. You, you're something. Hey, you've worked hard for that money, and I'm trying to maximize this for you. What's a college admissions person say to the student? We just want to tell you how great you are, how awesome you are, and how awesome your college experience is going to be. And Jesus says, if any of you would be first of all, you've got to be last of all and the servant of all. Will that message sell in our context today? But all of a sudden, with Jesus' words, our inflated notions of the primacy of self are punctured. So Jesus, you're saying I'm to think less of myself, not more like the ads are telling me? I'm to consider others more important than myself, not like the politicians are telling me. I'm to esteem others' needs more highly than my own. I'm to think of myself last. What happened to looking out for number one? Friends, one of the distinct advantages of reading the Bible in 21st century America and being a part of a church is that we can regularly be reminded that we are nobodies. That's out there, you're something, you're awesome, you're just the greatest. We come here, we're a bunch of losers. Really, we are. We're not awesome. We're sinners saved by the grace of God. He's something. He's the winner. He's somebody, and he's taken us all along with him. College students, you're going to go around, or excuse me, high school students, you're going to go around and You've got to talk to college advisors and admissions offices, and they will send you letters that are bright and flashy and exciting, and they got lots of exclamation points on there, and then we dollar figures on them, perhaps, because you got some money, because whatever. And they're just going to tell you all the time how awesome you are. You're so awesome, and you've got to come to our school. We think you're so awesome. My job as your pastor is to make sure you hear this loud and clear. You're not awesome. It's just a service I provide for you. <laughs> you're not awesome. You're not. Don't buy it. Don't believe it. You're not as special as they think you are. You're not as unique as they think you are. You're, you're a sinner, and if you're in Christ, you've been saved by His grace, entitled to nothing. The beneficiary of the new kingdom He's going to invite us into, we're not awesome. We're not the first. No, we are last. We are the servant of all. Greatness is not found in trumping up our own sense of how great we ourselves are, now, greatness is found in a humble recognition of who we are as sinners saved by the grace of God. We must eschew and reject all worldly notions of greatness. Just encourage uh, parents here as you're teaching your kids this, pause the TV. Now, here's the ad about greatness. Pause the TV and talk to your kids about it. You see what they're saying, kids? And what view of the human person do they have? What are they trying to sell to us here? Maybe some of you watched the Masters over the weekend, and all we heard is about how great Tiger Woods is. Oh, greatness, greatness, greatness. This is true greatness. Look at that swing. How great Tiger Woods is. Tiger Woods is lost. What will all that greatness look like 50 years from now? This is true greatness. Second point of application. Let us eagerly take our place as the last of all and the servant of all. Let us eagerly Take our place as the last of all and the servant of all. First, in light of this passage, we must train ourselves, disciple ourselves to think of ourselves in this way. I don't belong in first place. I don't belong 
at the front of the line. I shouldn't be the one being served by others. Rather, my rightful place is in serving others. We don't see ourselves as more important than others. We don't see ourselves as being entitled to anything. Rather, we see ourselves as the servants of all. But friends, this being last of all and being servant of all, this isn't meant to remain merely theoretical. Theory must become practice. At some point, you have to actually get up and go to the back of the line. At some point, you need to give up your seat. At some point, you need to stop asking how other people can serve you and ask instead how you can serve others. Instead of complaining about why your brothers and sisters will give you more attention, why don't you consider volunteering your time to serve them? Instead of lamenting about how you've been overlooked and how the world hasn't stopped the parade to notice your brilliance and greatness, maybe you should start taking notice of the needs of others. Get out of yourself and become absorbed instead in serving others. Stop looking for a crown and instead try to find a towel in a basin of water. Stop looking to be recognized and look instead for the overlooked people among us and in our community. Stop pressing yourself into positions of privilege and status and start promoting others into such positions. In the church, in the community, in your home, in the marketplace, let us pursue the true greatness that expresses itself in becoming servants of all. If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Let us fight over the back of the line. Let us jump over each other for the worst seat at the party. Let's be eager to be the servant of all. As Paul says, let us outdo one another in showing honor. Third and final application, and then we'll be done. Third point of application. Let us all be more eager to serve children. Let us all be more eager to serve children. Now, how could I preach this passage with any modicum of faithfulness if I don't make the precise application that Jesus makes in this passage. He says, you all should be serving children more. That's the application I would like to make. We should all be more eager to serve children. Jesus esteems them highly. He himself is willing to become their servant. How much more should we love and receive and serve children? This is greatness defined. There are many men out there perhaps some even here, who would love to be leaders in the church, but they would never serve in the nursery. There are women who would love more public recognition, but they never serve in the Sunday school. There are many Christians, perhaps some even here, waiting to be recognized, so confident they've been overlooked, bitter that their greatness is not being celebrated. Meanwhile, All around them are needy children, lonely people, men and women with great needs. Everywhere around them in the church and in the community, there are the broken and scattered fragments of humanity. And instead of investing their lives in helping those in need, they busy themselves looking for new ways to press themselves into the spotlight, eagerly pining for a place of preeminence. Friends, may it not be so among us. Jesus said to his disciples, you want to be great, start spending more of your time among children. If this passage were to have its way with us, many would be more eager 
to serve children in nurseries and classrooms and other such settings. Candidly, brothers and sisters, it should not be as hard as it is in this church to find help in the nursery. I know I'm probably stepping on some toes. Not everyone needs to serve in nursery to be a faithful Christian. I'm not saying that, and some have good reasons not to serve in nursery. It should not be as hard as it is, though, to find volunteers to serve in the nursery. It should not be as hard as it is to find volunteers to serve in the Sunday school. It should not be as hard as it is to find volunteers to serve in the youth ministry. But not everyone needs to serve in those specific contexts. In order to fulfill the ideals of this passage, there are other ways to love and bless and serve children. Start by simply noticing children. Are these just ancillary, auxiliary members of the gathering here? Are they part of us? Start by noticing children. Maybe talk to them. Start to care for them and their lives. Seek to bless them. And, and parents of children, you may say, I love kids. I love my kids. I love doing things with my kids. Well, start talking to other people's kids. Pay attention to the children and the youth among us. My friend, how you serve children, how you serve the neediest among us, is perhaps the most profound commentary on your greatness. At Charles Spurgeon in his pastor's college, he trained something like 900 men over the course of his ministry. He stipulated this as a requirement. The men who would serve as pastors must be known as lovers of children. And he would often ask children, uh, do you know Mr. So-and-so? Have you ever, ever talked to him? He would say, children are the best judges of character. Whether it's through working in the nursery or Sunday school, volunteering to mentor and tutor students across the street, babysitting kids for a needy family, or just stopping to notice and speak to children in your home, in the church, at the daycare or school, when you're out and about, children should never escape our notice. They are precious to Christ and they should be precious to us. And every act of kindness shown to them is taken by Christ as an act of kindness shown to Him. Do you want to be great, my disciples, the Lord says? Become the last of all and the servant of all, including little children who need to be loved and served and cared for. Brothers and sisters, the halls of greatness are located downstairs in the children's wing, not behind this lectern or this pulpit. They're located in hospitals where needy people need to be visited. They are located in prisons. They are located in nursing homes. They are located on the front porches and in the living rooms of unpopular and unspectacular people who need to be loved and served. I think it's so funny. People will talk about what they look forward to in heaven, and they talk about those who will be honored in heaven. And there will be Augustine, and there will be Martin Luther, and there will be Charles Spurgeon, and there will be B.B. Warfield and all these sorts of people. I think they'll be somewhere in the line, somewhere. I don't think they'll be at the head of the pack. Some people will look at preachers or theologians or, or those we think about in church history. Well, they, they, they will be the ones most honored, I'm sure. No, I think they have their reward. I expect to see at the front of the line uh, Miss Marianne Gailey, faithful Sunday school teacher in the church I grew up in, still doing it to this day. Thousands of kids she's blessed over the course of her life. Uh, I think Jerry Newman will be honored. Humble, unobtrusive guy, served as a deacon for like 30, 40 years, was like furniture in the household of God. He was never the main place setting. He was more like the wallpaper, maybe. <laughs> It'd be the people that got the coffee ready for their brothers and sisters, got up earlier than anybody else to set up the coffee. It'll be those who, hey, it's, 
Not my turn to do the nursery, but someone called out, well, I'll, I'll fill in the gap there. It'll be those who were the servants of all and the last of all. Last word, don't miss this, friends. In calling us to this, I am not calling us to some abstract or impersonal notion of greatness. No, greatness walked among us. Greatness used to eat his meals with tax collectors and sinners. Greatness was not embarrassed to spend his time among the sexually immoral people who were cast outs of society. Greatness loved to take up little children in his arms and to hold them close and to teach them the gospel, even when his disciples thought he had other more important appointments on the calendar, that there was a speaking engagement he was supposed to get to. Greatness even treated those fickle and disappointing disciples by asking them to sit back and relax while he washed their feet. Greatness walked among us. But greatness didn't stop there. Greatness humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, to save needy sinners like you and me. Do you want to be truly great? Then look to Jesus. Let's pray. Father, how this text, these words from the lips of our Lord, just blast so many of our pretensions about ourselves. Just demolish so many lies and false notions and idols in our lives. Expose the hidden motives of our hearts. And how we've been so often hypocrites. How we've so often been just like uh, your fickle disciples, self-interested so often, vying for position and rank and status and recognition. Oh, Lord, please forgive us. Please teach us sweetly and gently as you taught your disciples uh, when you were among us. We pray, Father, that you would teach us also what it means to be the last of all and the servant of all. Oh, surely you have shown us this in your own example, in washing our feet and in going to the cross and dying for our sins. May we learn this lesson and take it to heart. And may it be our joy, our zeal, our delight to earnestly follow in the example that the Master has set. May we be those who are eager to take our place at the back of the line, eager to serve others, eager to love children, eager to serve the needy among us, eager to humble ourselves. But we know in so doing, Lord, we are modeling to the world what it is our Savior has done and humbling Himself, even going to the cross so that we could have our sins forgiven. May we love the place of humility. May we value a broken and contrite spirit. May we be eager to stoop down with a towel and basin, to wipe the feet of our brothers and sisters, to wipe the feet of thousands of needy people in our community. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand, let's sing once more this hymn, Be Thou My Vision.